They need to do the work among the poor or the oppressed or the forgotten, the people that they feel a call to help. If they feel a little uncomfortable being there, they're probably in the right place. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in faith today with author and professor Jean Kelly. She writes from Columbus, Ohio, where she teaches journalism and service learning at Otterbein University. In fact, we're hearing her from their studios. She's currently working on a book chronicling her literary pilgrimages to the sacred places of American Catholic writers. Jean, thank you for speaking with us today. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. I have to ask a question right away. This book that you're in the process of working on, reading about this, it said, quote, I long to see a place in the Catholic Church for people like me, (laughs) seekers who read deeply and negotiate beliefs both intellectually and spiritually. And I want to ask about seekers. Some people do seek. And then there's other people who say, wait, I've been seeking. I finally found. I just want to stay right where I am. Is there a place for both? Oh, definitely. I think you, in my experience, I've been at different places at different times in my life where, you know, that status quo has been perfectly satisfactory. But other times, based on my life stage or what I hear in my church, I've been more of a seeker and a questioner. And I find myself drawn to other writers of faith who also were striving for that intellectual depth. And so sometimes they even present questions that I hadn't thought about before and makes me ponder and come up with my own thinking about that. So sometimes it's the text itself that make me begin to wonder about things and to explore a little more. Let's go back and talk just a little bit about your early background. What do you first remember about faith or religion in your life? Well, I am what we call a cradle Catholic, (laughs) so um, I don't remember a time when faith was not important in my life. I'm number six in a family of seven children, a a big Irish Catholic family um, in the Midwest, and so my siblings and I all went to parochial schools. Uh, We went to Mass together celebrated the sacraments together. It was even part of our family life to the extent of at Christmas we had an Advent wreath, and not a lot of even my other Catholic friends did that. We always had to go to Mass on St. Patrick's Day before going to the parade. (laughs) It was a religious Mm. holiday for us. My mother taught nursing at a Catholic hospital nursing school, and so we actually had sisters in our house as a young child. So I always remember them being there and even priests and clergy over. So they were close to our family. When it was time for trick or treat, one of the first places my parents put us in the car and took us was to the convent of the Sisters of St. Joseph who taught in our Catholic school. And so that was something we were expected to do, that they could get to see us in our costumes. So it was always part of my, my early life. Faith was an integral part of my family. So I don't remember a time without it. (laughs) Did you have, like, not everyone, but many people do, kind of a a time of questioning, like, well, this made sense. I've been growing up with it, but is this real? Now what does it mean to me growing up? Right, right. Um, I think probably the first time we have a formal 
time where that's expected of us to think about that would be, for me, it was in eighth grade when I made my confirmation, and I was very aware of the fact that this was my decision. Um, Even though my brothers and sisters before me had made that decision, I took it very seriously and did some discernment and really wasn't a questioning. I actually was chosen to read. We had to petition the bishop to be confirmed, and so we had to write a letter And they selected me to go to the lectern and actually read my letter to the bishop while he was sitting there. So um, that was that was a special moment. Actually, I've I've just written a piece that's coming out about that moment, that time of making that decision. That was the beginning of your religious writing career. Right. It was apparently. Yes. (laughs) And then I think after that, I've not so much had any kind of crisis of faith or a period of questioning. And so my faith hasn't wavered, but at times I've been very disappointed with how the faith has been communicated and administered by the hierarchy of the American Catholic Church. So that's created some dissonance for me. I don't agree with every priest or every bishop. I do try to respect the authority of the institutional church because I believe that's why Uh, We have the Gospels preserved and our great traditions and our sacraments, which are all very meaningful to me. But I sometimes worry that certain Catholic beliefs have been allowed to be politicized and used as a wedge to divide Catholics between conservative and liberals. And I'm always distressed because those who would maybe call themselves progressive Catholics or liberal Catholics, politically liberal, tend to leave the church. So that's something I'm unwilling to do. And that's, I think, where I come into that deeper understanding and reading and questioning and writing about it. Um, and that's where I, what I meant where with I, I know there's I have a sense that there are people like me that we don't hear from as much as writers and, and we don't hear about them from the pews. But I think we're out there. Um, and so that's who I want to write for because they have an interest in understanding the faith intellectually as I do. Have there been moments in your life that really made you feel like, I do have a connection to God? I think I've been in about six or seven years ago, a period of what we call reversion, because of course I'm not a convert, but a revert, where my faith has deepened. And it was caused Mm -hmm. by one of these kind of political things happening that I disagreed with. And it was to me a, a moment where Grace intervened because about that same time, my parish was sponsoring a women's retreat on the topic of Lectio Divina, which is the Latin term for meaning sacred reading. And it's the idea that reading can be prayer. And contemplating texts that are considered spiritual is equivalent to praying. And so I attended that. And then all these possibilities of probing my faith intellectually opened up to me. And so I know that's when I was very close to God and continued and have gotten ever closer to God and deeper in my faith through the reading and writing that I've been doing since then. That Lectio Divina, that's actually a formalized Benedictine practice, if I understand correctly. It is a practice, right. It is the idea of that's what the retreat taught us how to do. And essentially, it's choosing a book or some sort of text and then reading it and contemplating it, sometimes visualizing it in our imagination and just taking it as a opportunity for prayer and contemplation. I'm curious if you feel like you have been led to some of the things that you teach. 
both for social justice as well as simply encouraging people in their writing skills, their communication? I guess so. I mean, I think I've written I've written all my life as a child. I used to make little books. I guess that's where I made a decision at this time six or seven years ago that this was a skill I obviously have. I had never done any writing about my faith, however, as a journalist and as teaching journalism. But it's now that I've gotten to that point where I guess it's confidence to be able to talk about my faith openly and to not make any apologies for the fact that the reason I do so interest in social justice is because it's one of the social teachings of my faith. I've made that much more explicit to my students and even have on one of my syllabi a a picture of a saint I have a special devotion to. She's not yet a saint. She's servant of God, Dorothy Day. She's actually one of the people I will be featuring in my book. But it does seem to be something I've had in the background of my life always. And so that's why it's such a blessing to be able to to do this as a freelancer and potentially as a book author. I want to ask about a concept that you mentioned, an article that you wrote for U.S. Catholic online, which is talking about Sister Simone Campbell. Yes. She obviously was very politically active, but all based on her faith. There's a quote that you give, and I'll I'll quote what you wrote. Mm -hmm. I revisited the wisdom of Sister Simone, quote, The guilt or the curse, or whatever, is that we think we have to do it all, and then we get overwhelmed and don't do anything. But that's the mistake. Community is about just doing my part. Just do one thing. Right. Is that a lesson you've learned by experience? It is, because I think that's kind of the the curse of the liberal, because there's so many things you're concerned about in society and in politics. It just is overwhelming. It's actually something I teach my students when I teach a community journalism class that uses service learning and have a great book by Paul Loeb called Soul of a Citizen. And it's about just finding that one thing. You don't know what it is yet, maybe, but that sometimes you're, it's foisted on you. And that's the one thing that you have to know more deeply and take a chance and put yourself out there and get involved. And so I make my students throughout the semester identify what that is, where I set them up to work in a certain place and we talk about certain social issues there, but they ultimately have to find that for themselves. I know that St. Ignatius Loyola, who founded the Jesuit order, um, said something kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but we must make up our mind to do what we can without afflicting ourselves if we cannot do it all. <laughs> and that is, that's a hard lesson. I think I finally learned it, but I have to guard against that all the time because I do kind of find myself, my attention scattered into a lot of things. And so I have to remind myself that as well. We talk about faith as a journey, and I'm curious if you look at your belief in your first decade or second decade, and then compare to now, what do you believe differently, or or what do you understand, perhaps, differently on this journey? Yeah, I I would definitely say that, because I can actually find a milestone about seven years ago where my faith changed pretty dramatically, and the journey was through text and through my own writing and recognizing what particular skills and talents I have through the grace of God that I can share these ideas and these thoughts and find an audience. So I think it's different in that way and that I have the confidence to be doing this as part of my job, to be willing to talk about my faith, 
one-on-one or to an audience through my writing. And that's a big step for me, I believe. And so being a journey, I also hope that 10 years from now, faith (laughs) is also in a very different place because, you know, you're in a different life stage, but I hope to continue to read. I'm never, I'm just always amazed at how little I know, how much there is to read about the lives of the saints, about church history, about other religions. And so I'm hoping to continue that path, but deepen my faith in the next 10 years. In that experience you talked about seven years ago, that that sort of change, was it something that you felt or learned about yourself or, or felt guided to during that process? Can you tell me the story of that event, that change? I don't know what really prompted it, except that topic of Lectio Divina. As someone who loves books and who teaches writing, that was the impetus to get me in the room. I think I also had some preconceived notions about what it was going to be like and biases that were wrong. Some of them, most of them were wrong. So those were my excuse for not participating in a women's retreat up to that point. Um, And so I think that's why I hadn't done it to that point. But I also think I now retrospectively believe it was in preparation for where I am now. So I'm very grateful that I took that chance, you know, took that risk. Um, And my family, my daughters were still pretty young, you know, to be gone for a whole weekend. The other aspect of it that really appealed to me was there was an aspect of it or time that was a completely silent retreat. (laughs) And having three girls, that was (laughs) extremely appealing. And there were so many women there who said that they couldn't do it. And I don't know how I'm going to stay silent for, you know, the four hours or what it was. And I was like, that is no problem for me. (laughs) I loved it. I've heard it said that you can connect the dots looking back, but obviously not looking forward. You don't know where you're headed always. And sometimes you look back and and, and then that becomes clear. In my research, I read an article that doesn't directly apply to this, which was you involving those three daughters of yours in learning to cook. Oh, yes. Basically, it taught them to stop complaining about what dinner was because they were involved in choosing and cooking. Right. I'm wondering if you feel like your faith is different or you have learned things because you are a parent. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that also, too, I feel strongly that I have the responsibility to pass on my faith to them. Their father is not of the same faith. So that deepened my faith um, while they were learning and preparing for the sacraments. We, you know, the church changes over time. I learned a lot from them. I was right post-Vatican II where things went pretty free to be me. <laughs> you know, we didn't learn a lot of theology, <laughs> and they did. So I think it's we've contributed to each other's growth in faith, and so definitely— And it's changed, I think. I remember when my first daughter was born, because I was a reluctant parent, I think. It was not how I saw my success as my plan. I maybe assumed I would eventually have children, but it wasn't something I had as a goal. But I remember when she was born thinking, now I understand all the Hallmark cards. You know, this is maybe part (laughs) of the family of man. Yes. And, And it's the perspective that gives you is just, it changes everything. Well, I've had that parental experience. I also remember the first time I really, really had my heart broken, suddenly turning on the radio and leaving on songs I just would not have abided before. 
Right. right. <laughs> Feeling like, but now I understand. Yeah, now you cry at all those sappy commercials. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, and I don't think there's a right answer, or maybe we don't know the answer to this, about so many faith traditions in the world, just that there are so many? Hmm. We all seek truth. We find it typically in a tradition that we've been born into, not always. And then we also, it seems like the more secure we are in our own faith, the more open we are to letting others celebrate their faith. And yet we still have to think, wow, this is different depending where you were born and all around the world. Right, that happenstance. I, I did have the good fortune of taking a kind of world religion class in college. And, and I really, in my own faith, have a lot of respect for writers who do borrow from the other traditions. Uh, you mentioned Sister Simone Campbell. She uh, does Zen meditation. Another uh, text that I find very helpful is by a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello. He mostly gave retreats. The, his books are actually kind of like a transcripts of his retreats, but it was very Eastern because he's a native of India. And he borrowed from both. And I think there's real power when we can be open-minded enough to understand other faith traditions. And you see the common threads, but they can build your faith. It's nice to see some of those consistencies, because I think those are truth in that case. You know, in referring to text, do you have an Old Testament or a New Testament story that you turn to that inspires you? Hmm. I don't know if there's one in particular. I do in my daily prayer, my morning prayer, have a daily devotional that makes, you know, the the reading. And of course, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops have the whole calendar year of readings. And so it's usually one of those. And then the one I use is called The Word Among Us. Um, Other people use something called the Magnificat. I just happen to find what that reading is that day and then what the interpretation of, of it is, is in that moment what I need to hear. You know, I don't have, it just sometimes when something will stand out with something I'm going through right now, I'll, I will write it in a prayer journal or refer to it. But I don't think there's any one overriding one. I do love the Beatitudes. I think they guide all my my social justice work. And a lot of the people I've been writing about were very dedicated to the Beatitudes because the idea is if you can live the Beatitudes, you've done everything we're supposed to do. Um, and they really are instructional and practical in that way. Not not easy to follow by any stretch of the imagination, but they're a good place to start. So if I had to pick one, I would probably say the Beatitudes. What a place. What a place to have as an anchor. I heard someone say lots of folks want to have the Ten Commandments on their courthouse, but they said we really should have the Beatitudes, but no one's ready for that. Right, exactly. That's a very revolutionary text if you think about it. Gene, I want to ask you about wisdom and writing. You talked about keeping a prayer journal, and I'm wondering if you start writing because you have thoughts and you have inspiration, or do you start writing and then you discover thoughts and inspiration? It's probably the second one. Because this new phase in my writing career has evolved out of my faith journey, what happened after I attended that retreat on Lectio Divina, soon after that, I was called to participate in our Eucharistic adoration that we have at our parish. It's now a perpetual adoration, which is where a host is displayed in the monstrance in a Eucharistic chapel. And because we believe in transubstantiation, that that 
host is Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, we never leave it alone. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people in my parish volunteer to sit in prayer with that host and the presence of Christ. And so I was, I believe, on a sabbatical from my university teaching job at the time. And I, well, you know, I'll just do it for these three months. It was in those moments where I maybe started with the rosary and they would have in the back spiritual texts that you could just borrow for the hour you were there. And there was one that was called, No Wonder They Call It the True Presence of Christ. And it was a collection of stories of people's experience in Eucharistic adoration, answered prayers, and creative inspiration. And I remember there was a chapter of somebody who wrote liturgical music wrote it in adoration. That's where it started. So that's what I started to do. That's where my very first essay was crafted, was while I was in prayer with the Eucharist. And that was the first essay I wrote. To actually feel like you're there in the presence of God. And that's what it feels like to me. Yes, very much so. So I really feel guided by, by his presence with what I'm writing. And so I leave myself open to that inspiration. And so sometimes it's a new idea. Sometimes I'll actually have a draft, you know, that maybe I've started in longhand in my prayer journal that I say that, oh, I think I might be able to sell this and work on a little bit. I'll actually print out a rough draft and bring it in and ask for guidance. Talk about an editor. Yeah. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is my editor, (laughs) which is pretty great. And and it's... I can't wait to see that credit in the desk cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I've had some amazing experiences in adoration, and I'm not the only one. We often, to encourage more people to participate, will do pulpit pitches. And I've heard my fellow parishioners tell some amazing stories. Mm. It's, It's a wonderful time to have an hour to use in the presence of Christ, however you want to approach it. And as I said, sometimes I just come in and say... Holy Spirit, you know, what What should I be thinking about? What should I be reading? And I'll sometimes actually have texts with me that I'll open to a random page as a way to be guided. And very often they are something, an answer to something I'm worried about or concerned about or an intention that I've said in my rosary. It happens all the time. I've even had an experience of like getting a phone message <laughs> while I'm in there because you have to turn off everything. It's very silent there. Uh-huh praying for one of my daughters, and then I leave and find the phone message that relieved all my fears. It was that close in proximity when I prayed for it, so I find it very powerful time and opportunity. There is importance in being in that place, in that practice, about this memoir you're working on. I think a working title is A Literary Pilgrimage to the Sacred Places Mm -hmm. and Intellectual Depths of America's Catholic Writers. So you see something important about, at least for you, to go to some of these places, physically to go there. Very much so. That started just, again, somewhat by happenstance for knowing that we were near places that writers lived. But it's like the ancient pilgrimages in that proximity, you, you by seeking proximity to someone of great faith, you're hoping to find that same spark of sanctity for your own faith. 
of course, pilgrimages required some effort and dedication to get there and some research and knowledge before going. The very first one I ended up writing about was someplace I'd been many times where my family had a second home and a writer I really cared about, but I didn't really think of his faith life. And then when I started researching it, I was able to go back to the church where he had attended with his family. And I do visit the cemetery and pray for them and see what sometimes, again, if they're famous writers, what other people have left. So it's really interesting for me to see the impact these believers have had on others, whether it's through just their writing in a secular way or their faith. So I think I can only see that by going in person. I've also found that in the process of the journey, I get lessons. And by being open to the stories of the people I encounter while I'm seeking out these places. So that's what the the idea behind the book is. And so I'm trying to encourage other people to do the same thing, whether it's to the writers that I'm featuring or to someone they found particularly inspirational, is to make the effort to go to where they, the church they attended, the the grave where they were buried, and maybe what the epitaph on their headstone will have some meaning for them, or what somebody else has left there. And so that's the idea. And also doing some of the reading of the text that I like. Maybe they can find some that they like. Is there something that I should ask you, but I don't know to ask? <laughs> I guess you've, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'm always going back to being a, a teacher. And that's actually what I'm hoping to do with my writing again, because I, I don't find a lot of texts that speak to me about my faith, my particularly my Catholic faith. I know for me that my faith is deepened through reading and writing. But there was a time in my life that I didn't have much time for reading when I was uh, much less writing, raising young children. And I know my college students don't read. <laughs> and they don't write a whole lot either. Um, what I always tell them, though, is that they need to do the work. They need to Put themselves out in the world among the poor or the oppressed or the forgotten, the people that they feel a call to help. And I always tell them, if they feel a little uncomfortable being there to help, they're probably in the right place. And that you should accept that you're going to learn something that you're going to be changed from the experience. And that's where you're going to encounter people and their humanity. You will learn important lessons. And, and that's what Pope Francis calls the culture of encounter is to actually be in the world and understand people's stories. I think with, you know, electronic media being so pervasive, especially my young college students, they're very timid about putting themselves out there in new situations. They'd rather, you know, phone it in. <laughs> Literally. Yes. And so it, they do need a little bit of a push in and to know they're going to make mistakes. And, and that's where their faith, whatever their faith is, that's where it's going to find meaning to them is in doing work that they care about to help others. Jean P. Kelly writes from Columbus, Ohio, teaches journalism and service learning at Otterbein University. Jean, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. You are welcome. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Dr. Jean P. Kelly. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith.
This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Have you ever ended up doing nothing because you couldn't do it all? If you could do or focus on just one thing for people around you, what would it be? Do you have a practice like Eucharistic adoration that helps you feel the presence of God? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Peg Woodruff is a mom, granny, animal lover, and radio host. Whitney Snow is an assistant producer with BYU Radio's storytelling program, The Appleseed. She studies speech pathology. Francesca Lawson is a wife, mother, and grandmother, and teaches courses in the interdisciplinary humanities. Joseph Perry teaches philosophy and humanities. I was struck by what she said has prompted some of her thinking recently. The, I think the word she used was disappointment, she felt at how some of her fellow church members are politicizing sacred beliefs, as we you could hear her talk about how important uh, Catholic social teaching is, social justice. And, and I, I, I really relate to that. I have to confess right off here that I, I relate to her on that. And so I really appreciated the way that she's bringing faith into her journey dealing with that because that's something that I'm wrestling with and found inspiring in the way that she talked about that. Isn't that a common problem with any religion in our world, the imperfection of the people around us Mm -hmm. and sometimes disappointment with the way things are administered, sometimes disappointment with the way things are accepted or not accepted or, or made troublesome? simply because we're such a world of imperfect people. Mm -hmm. And one thing that stuck out to me about her methodology when it came to addressing the situation was that she dug in personally through reading and writing to say, well, how do I feel about it? What do I believe? Rather Mm -hmm. than just picking a side and leaving it at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've definitely had similar experiences. She bemoans the fact that there are many, she says, many liberal Catholics have left the church. But what I liked about what she said is that clearly she's a thinking individual, but she's a, she's, um, a faithful individual. This, her faith is very strong, and yet she opens the door by questioning and writing and pondering. And I really was impressed by that. I thought we have a lot to learn, you know, all of us as religious people to, you know, be able to question and still maintain our faith. I think she's achieved a really good balance. That struck me, too, that she's very settled and grounded and is able to do this exploration from a place of safety, not feeling like the ground's about to fall out from under her. But I can can think about this. I can explore this. But I'm here to stay. I thought that was very impressive. At one point, she talked about reading, questioning, and then writing. And I do a lot of reading, and I do a lot of questioning, but I'm both impressed and I think inspired by the way she's using writing to think and come to certain resolutions about what her faith ought to prompt her to do. And that's why she's such a wonderful teacher is because she's thinking actively about what her faith prompts her to do. You know, writing has always been really important for me to be able to solidify concepts. I remember having a dream once that I knew meant something, but it was just kind of muddy to me. 
And so I got my journal out and I wrote it all down. And by the time it was written, I could see what it meant for me. And so sometimes the very act of writing helps my mind uh, mm -hmm. form the ideas and, and solidify them and, and make them clear to myself, even though I'm the one that wrote them down. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of a time, and, and I'm sorry I don't do this now because it was so helpful at the time, but I was going through a particularly hard, challenging period in my life. And I was reading the New Testament um, and reading about Paul. And I was so inspired as I would read that every day, I would write in my journal and I'd have these long sort of conversations with, with Paul about some of the things I was going through. And I remember, you know, when I was finished that year, I looked at that journal, it was a nice heavy journal, it was a, it was a document. And it was so therapeutic for me because I felt like I was internalizing the word of God, reading it, writing about my own experience. And, you know, I keep, I always look back on that and say, I should do that now. I should do that now, and I don't. But at least I have that one time in my life mm -hmm. when it, it made a difference. Mm -hmm. It really does help synthesize the heart and mind into something tangible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love it. Writing comes through for me in when I have questions or concerns, I tend to reach out to other people. Um, and whether that's through social media or, you know, sending an email to a religious leader that I knew and really respected, I find that even putting those thoughts to paper, as you're saying, um, helps me. But then also it kind of spoke to this idea. I really loved what she had to say about pilgrimage, which is kind of a focus mm. of her book about mm -hmm. reaching out in faith to people of faith um, in order to strengthen your own. I've found that multiple times in my life that I've been in, you know, had personal crises where in, in reaching out to somebody else and hearing about their experience, my own faith has been strengthened. Absolutely. You know, I think that sort of goes together with what she was talking about, of reaching out, of speaking confidently about your beliefs. It was an 18-year-old who spoke confidently about things that started me on my own faith journey. And it reminded me of a friend who spent some time in Boston, and she was a chaplain on an interfaith outreach group. And I've never known a woman to speak more forwardly and openly and confidently about her faith in a way that is absolutely unthreateningly. And Dr. Kelly was talking about that too, about being able to just speak about what you believe, speak about what you're thinking and feeling. And, and uh, this friend of mine is a wonderful example. I want to be just like her because she gathers people around her. She is sort of the hub mm. Of, of people because she is so confident and so grounded and settled herself and so willing to listen to others as well. You know, I think uh, her confidence, Dr. Kelly's confidence, comes from a place that in my own faith tradition, it should be there, but I don't know how much it is. Uh, I, I love the way she talks, and she reminds me of a number of other Catholics that talk very openly about the grace of God and very openly about the fact that there's a calling, there's grace that attends, that this is not her on her own. There's just, and, and, and that goes along with 
that all that wonderful part in the discussion where she talked about all the wonderful experiences she's had in adoration, not having a transactional relationship with God where I need this, I need this, and I need this, and thanks for that, and thanks for that, but adoration, praise, and simply in praise, assuming that God is with her and with that confidence she can lift up her voice because it's going to be God vo- God's voice coming through her. I love that about the Catholic tradition. Uh, and I would like to see it more in my own speech and in our, my own faith tradition. Yeah, she seems to be able to have uh, – she has this this wonderful gift to be involved with principles of social justice and inspiring her students to do the same thing. But as Joe was saying, you know, she was talking about this retreat, and then she talked about the invitation to participate in Eucharistic adoration – she was volu- she volunteered to sit and pray for three months, and she said, "No wonder they call it the true presence of Christ, because she it was a period of silence where you read and you're silent." And she mentioned that after one particular episode, as she went home and got a phone message, there was the answer. To the, to the thing that she had been praying for. And I think it's this notion of silence and meditation, reading, pondering, thinking deeply. I was very impressed by that, and, and that's something that I also feel I need to do more in my own faith. We're a, in, in the church I go to, we're very oriented towards activity, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the essence of who we are. Mm-hmm. But there's not enough emphasis on the quiet contemplation. And maybe that's why she's so grounded, because Mm -hmm. you need that period of quiet. You need that period of time when you can really meditate and ponder. That's sometimes when the greatest insights come, at least for me, that's when they come. Me too. I I need times of being quiet. It is such a noisy world, such a busy world. You're pulled from one thing to another. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. And I find that I... To be replenished, I've got to sit down and be quiet and do that pondering. Mm-hmm. It's essential. Mm-hmm. I think it is for anyone. And to recenter yourself. I think that the thing that stuck out to me the most about the her talking about the Eucharistic adoration was the sacrifice that that requires. Um, and for me, my own faith tradition of fasting came to my mind as she was talking about that because... For example, um, I remember when my parents uh, first told me that they were getting a divorce and there was a period in my life where I was trying to overwhelm those thoughts and feelings that I was having with all of these other things, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, social media, friends, anything and everything that could distract me. And I think I actually found the most peace when I decided to fast for those 24 hours, pray, ponder and sit with how I was feeling. And that's when I had experiences of, you know, feeling comfort and and peace. And that was, and so that is just what that experience reminded me of. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Dr. Gene P. Kelly. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash in good faith. Now back to the conversation. I confess I'm not good at pondering or meditating. My brain just goes everywhere. I used to go running when I was much 
younger. <clears throat> when I wore a younger man's clothes, <laughs> uh, I would uh, go running to think, and I just, I just couldn't do it. So I confess, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, and I heard what she said about those sorts of things. But I guess that's the thing, is that it seems like reading, reading is prayer. Um, something to sort of focus my mind on is, oh, that's is probably quiet. going – yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it's fair enough. And I'm going to need something like that mm -hmm. to, to focus my mind because I just – Oddly enough, I, I realize I'm paid to think as a professor, but as you were talking about writing, Peg, I mean, it's true, as academic writing isn't the kind of personal writing she's doing, but I do see my faith being worked out in those things. But anyway, I just, I need a focus because I, I just, my head is noisy enough inside. <laughs> but that's what's so... Just a beautiful thing about almost everything she had to say was just that it all takes this level of work and concentration, but the reward, the mm -hmm. the the results are so wonderful that she is confident in her relationship with God, in her church, in her religion, and that all has come through like little sacrifices and thinking and writing and pondering, and that stood out stood out to me a lot. Whether or not I'm just a, a static, non-moving member of my own faith or whether I'm mm. actually actively trying to improve. So, yeah. You know, I think she said something interesting that, that prompted me to think about the way I meditate and ponder. She said that if she writes something, she prints it out and then asks for guidance from the Holy Ghost. I mean, I thought, mm. wow. That's, but that's sort of taking it in the right way. I mean, you're active, you're thinking, you're focused, and then you let it go. And that's when the inspiration comes, when you're quiet and you listen. I think she has a real gift, and she called it the hour in the presence of Christ. And I thought, that, that's, that's it. You, do, you make your sacrifice, you do what you do, and then you back off. That's when the inspiration comes. I was very moved by the way she expressed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a daily devotional where you enter the presence of God, whether it's reading or I think you can do it with trusted friends, but, but where there's something intentional and that you're self-aware that you are in the presence of God, you have entered a holy space. And, and, and I really resonated with what she said uh, about going to places of her favorite writers and things like that. I, I, I'm a nerd that way. I'm a total nerd. The, the people that I love, the writers that I love and, and others, I love to go to their homes. I love to just feel like there is a very physical connection in those places. And so, because it is, I mean, we're embodied beings and to put your body next to where somebody else's body was or still is, you know, the notion of transubstantiation, I know that it strikes a lot of people as strange, but I love the notion that the word made flesh, God made flesh, is a very real thing for them. Mm -hmm. And in my faith tradition, LDS faith tradition, with an embodied God, that ought to mean something to us. I mean, we talk a lot about the spirit, but I like thinking about what that means as an embodied being, not as some sort of disembodied spirit tuning on the right wavelength of a radio frequency. Mm -hmm. That started me thinking about the depth of a person's religious observance. Sometimes we just go through the motions again and again. Sometimes it's on a much deeper level. 
and perhaps this will sort of illustrate it. I remember when I was a child, I was fascinated with Catholic movies. There was one about two little children who saw the Virgin Mary, and mm. they ended up getting persecuted and martyred at the end. There was Haley Mills and the Trouble with Angels, and she went to a parochial school, and mm -hmm. there were all the nuns, and I really wanted to be a nun. <laughs> I think mm. I think I only saw the habit and thought that would be pretty impressive to wear, mm. and uh, I thought that would be so much fun. And what a my understanding was just paper thin of what it would be to be a Catholic nun. And sometimes I think our religious observance is the same. We go to the right places, we do the right things, and it's about paper thin our depth and our commitment. To get a deeper commitment, to get layers deep, requires that reading and that writing and that pondering. And the things that she has done, uh, she clearly has a layers deep mm. faith that she's worked on for a great deal of her life. I never did become a nun. But I, I, I can but, tell. But I found, those, <laughs> I found those deep layers elsewhere, and uh, what a difference than just considering the surface. I want to go back to something she said about um, social justice. She made a couple, she gave a couple great quotes about when you're feeling like you have to do everything, sometimes all mm. you can do is, you know, what you're capable of. You can't fix everything all at once. Um, and I felt that before mm -hmm. um, in my own church, in my own congregation, feeling like there were issues that 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 could, you know, really throw me, but just having to, I don't know, just having to, we, we talked about it already, but just kind of having to, like, accept things as they are and work with what you have, even in a faith setting. Sure. Um, and what she said was, just do one thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's speaking to me because I can look and look and look at all the issues and think, oh, I I've got to do something. I've got to do something here. And you can look at it forever and never do anything. But how much better to just do one thing somewhere yeah. that makes good in the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I during a period when I was the LDS bishop, the congregational leader, um, that was the piece I came to was doing one thing every day um, because you can get overwhelmed with all the problems on your mind, both the administrative problems but also the people that are really struggling with things and that there are several moving pieces that you're trying to help with. And so, no, I did find some peace in just making sure every day doing one thing, which really what that meant was – talking, being with one person and making it a person-to-person -person kind of thing. Um, because I know that we can and, and you know, venerate writers, people that have really helped us on our faith journey, but it's also got to translate into pilgrimages to people who might need us. Um, and the being with, you can... It's, fun to, it's good to be for good causes, social justice, those sorts of things. I'm all over that. But that has to translate into being with. At least I'm happiest with myself when I'm doing that. I'll put it that way. Making a human connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, President Hinckley, a, a, a former um, prophet in the LDS Church, I think I wrote this down as she was saying that because – 
what he has said on many occasions resonates with her very point. Do one's part, do one thing. And, and he would always say that to people when they were overwhelmed. It's all right. It's going to work out. Do a little bit at a time, just a little bit. If, that, if you can just read a few verses of scripture a day, just do a little bit, and you will be blessed for it. You, and she is, she's really saying something very similar. I noticed that. I also like the idea of the reversion, not conversion, because everyone talks about becoming converted, and, and one needs to do that. But this idea of reversion sort of makes me think that this is this is an ongoing process. You may be converted, but you you can be reverted continually throughout your life by mm-hmm. having energizing experiences and doing um, you know some of the things she was talking about. So I, I like that. I like what she said. Because in my experience, faith doesn't stay on the same plane. Right. Um, if I'm feeding it, it's going up. If I'm too busy and I've let up on my devotions and I don't, I'm not thinking deeply about things and my prayers are just kind of by rote, my faith fades a little bit. And then I see the result of it, I don't like it because I don't feel as good as I did before, and so I put more effort into it, and immediately the scriptures or the prayer or the contemplation, they bear fruit, and my faith begins to be on the rise again. So I think we all need to be reverted <laughs> regularly. Yeah. It was a really regularly. good concept. I love that. Mm-hmm. Reversion happens for me probably most powerfully when someone else is either being converted or reverted. I'd say when someone actually converts, who finds God, uh, that that's huge for me. That you know, that just kind of makes me feel like I'm I'm not crazy, or at least I have a partner in in craziness, because um, it just really makes again the idea of bearing witness, the idea of a community of of people who independently believe, who can strengthen each other's faith, and whether that's with writing or presence or whatever else like that, those are powerful things. There's a real power in those things for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and with her writing. Basically, she's being a missionary as well. Yeah. She's urging others to take that faith journey, to ask those questions, to do the work, to just do one thing, yeah. and to go along with her yeah. on her journey. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if anyone ever, anyone else ever feels this way, but because of personal issues of my own, sometimes I can feel so distant from the religious organization that I'm involved with. But it's interesting because once I go out and seek those spiritual experiences of prayer, of reading, of attending a worship service. It's so funny because I always get this confirmation that God wants me there and that mm-hmm. that it's not about, <laughs> I guess, it's about that one little effort and then it's about me. It's between me and him. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Peg, Whitney, Francesca, and Joseph, and especially to Dr. Jean P. Kelly for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Where do you listen to In Good Faith? We'd love to know. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. 
In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producer is Rachel Sherman. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.